Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and today we'll be hearing from Robert Horwitz, who's the author of the very new America's Right, Anti-Establishment Conservatism, From Goldwater to the Tea Party. Robert, how are you doing? Fine. Thank you very much, and happy to be with you. Yeah, it's a real pleasure, real pleasure to have read the book. Um, I've had the chance to interview recently a couple of other people who were writing on the subject, and, and your take I thought was was really interesting. I, I gather that Part of that is because of some of your varied uh, background and where you are now and where you've been. What if you could talk a little bit about yourself, just about you know what your writing past is all about? Looks like you've done a lot of writing on regulatory reform and sort of how that informs your approach to this this book that you've just published. Sure, um, I was trained as a sociologist, got a PhD from Brandeis University. And I wrote a dissertation on uh, the rise of regulatory agencies and regulatory control in the United States and why deregulation happened. And um, so it was a general um, topic I alighted on, for the most part, on communications and particularly the deregulation of broadcasting. So my initial interest in that is that here we had a regulatory agency that had been certainly criticized, but, you know, in large part successful for about 60 years, the Federal Communications Commission. And when I was uh, a graduate student, I noticed that, you know, all these regulations were beginning to be taken away and try to understand how and why that happened. And after... uh, You may not remember this, but the early 1980s when I got my degree, a very bad time in the academic job market, and I got a job not in a sociology department but in a communication department because of the focus on communication industry and government policy issues. And uh, when I was in my new job for the first few years trying to figure out what to do with the dissertation, the topic expanded from just broadcasting to telecommunications, particularly the breakup of the phone company and the deregulation of what we call common carrier communications. And this, this background is really show, shows up in this book, not in the specifics, but but I think in in your in your take on the subject matter. And and let's let's talk about the book. And 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 in doing so, let's maybe just start with with the title and some definitions because. When we get into talking about the Tea Party, it seems to me definitions matter a lot. So in your title, you refer to anti-establishment conservatism. I wonder if you can define this for us, how you use the term, and particularly as it relates to other forms of conservatism. I know that you've done some work in, in uh, other countries, and so both in the U.S., but also how that you know, terminology differs from the way it's used elsewhere in the world. You know, conservatism is a um, 
there's a major theoretical tradition, a major political orientation that changes over time. It has um, a great many constituent parts. And so um, there are various kinds of conservatism that appear in American history. And the pre-World War II conservatives or the right wing is rather different from the post-World War II conservatism, which is itself also different from the current one. So the, the definition that I gave, anti-establishment conservatism, really was a way of putting a label on a, a, a variation of conservatism, of a, a wing of the American right that emerged after World War II that split with the pre-World War II isolationism of the right. Okay, that split with the isolationism of the pre-war right to embrace the fight against the international communist foe. And the reason why I talk about it as anti-establishment conservatism is that that was very much a break from what we understand as establishment conservatism, the sort of Eisenhower, moderate Republican Party that, for the most part, um, accepted the New Deal and state intervention into the economy, although it's critical of it, and accepted... Um, Truman's containment policy. The anti-establishment conservatives were the wing of the right that wanted to take the fight to the communist foe directly, were very unhappy with containment policy and with their Republican establishment moderate contemporary. And they also wanted to overturn or repeal the New Deal so anti-establishment conservatism is this term that I'm giving to the wing of the conservative American right founded in William F. Buckley's National Review and found its real strength with the 1964 uh, candidacy of Barry Goldwater. Let's, let's place ourselves into the, that time period. You start with Goldwater and we'll, we'll move ahead. Uh, soon, but let's place us, our, ourselves there and also talk about another term that you use, which is fusionism. Um, where do we get this, and, and, and who coined the term, and, and why is it an important term to understand that time period in, in the, the, the Goldwater period? Okay, fusionism, as I remember, is really um, a term from George Nash's classic work on, um, on American conservatism. And it's a way of trying to understand this combination of a kind of traditional, often Christian uh, orientation toward the world and a, kind of, and a worldview and libertarianism that would seem to be quite um, opposite of each other. But fusionism and Buckley's genius was to keep those tendencies together in a political coalition that opposed establishment conservatism, the sort of moderate, moderate Northeast Republican model of that. And you talk a lot both about 
the ideas, but also their their implementation. And so one of the the big intellectual pieces of this time period is the road to serfdom. You really can't leave that out of uh, out of this discussion. But that book was, as you presented, is not just an intellectual exercise. There were institutions and publicity connected to its publication. So, and you talk about this, and I think it's some interesting ways. Uh, so, how did the general public come to read Hayek's work? Um, how did this go from simply a intellectual debate to to uh, much more of a movement that that involves the public in ways that other intellectual debates often don't? Right. Um, you know, if if you read Hayek's book, it's not that easy going. Um, but it was popularized in um, various forms. It was uh, abridged, and an, is- uh, an edition, an abridged edition was sold and marketed by um, Reader's Digest, sent to everybody who was a subscriber to Reader's Digest. Um, it was even. Uh, made into a cartoon book, you know, an illust- what we now call illustrated novels, but essentially a kind of cartoon version of um, Hayek's book. And it was very explicitly financed and distributed by the sort of anti-establishment conservative establishment. If that, I realize that's a sort of contradiction in terms, but those people who were bent on pushing Hayek used almost every lever of the media empire to get that book out there. And it did. It had a, um, it had wide recognition, um, for a book that was written, you know, for an intellectual audience by an economist. It was quite extraordinary. And then the, the other side of that, who, uh, Ayn Rand's books, her novels were also, um, extremely popular, you know, when they were published in the fifties. And has continued to be so. And, and who else is involved here? What what are some of these other institutions? Because you you talk about some of the anti-establishment entrepreneurs yes. who were active during this time period. So there are many, but but who are the, some of the notable ones? And and where did they work during this time period? During the 1960s and during the 1970s? Um, many of them came up through the Goldwater campaign. Um, probably the most important was Phyllis Schlafly, um, who, whose book, uh, A Choice Not an Echo, was in effect a campaign book that mirrored Goldwater's um, book um, and had very wide distribution. It was very easy to read, short, punchy, uh, very critical of you know, establishment political figures and pushing Goldwater as this alternative. Um, uh, one account that I read showed that that book had something like three to three and a half million um, copies out there around the 1964 election. Now, and the other, other people who were important there, who became um, very important conservative political entrepreneurs later, were people like Paul Weirich, people like Richard Vigory, um, many of whom had uh, developed very um, competent experience in media and in um, certain kinds of, uh, uh, what was it called, you know, Vigory had the sort of uh, 
blanking the direct, direct mail. mail stuff. A lot of that was right. developed in and around the Goldwater campaign. Now, those folks um, who had been quite prominent, you know, as um, sort of mid-level operatives during the Goldwater campaign uh, were pretty much purged from the GOP leadership after Goldwater's um, campaign fizzled so badly. And those were some of the people who, in effect, I say, went underground, or at least underground from the Republican political establishment, to put together some of the early, um, help put together think tanks, put together the networks that brought funders into those things, and they became extremely important in the mid-1970s when um, Jimmy Carter's presidency began to founder and when the kinds of opposition to the liberal democratic establishment, particularly among Christian uh, Protestant evangelicals, was beginning to take hold. Right. And though the irony in, is um, the, the position that, that, the, that you describe Carter playing in inviting uh, the social conservative uh, movement into uh, national politics. I recently interviewed Michael Lind for the podcast, someone that you quote in your book, and he referred to Jimmy Carter as the first major economic neoliberal policymaker. Um, more so than more significant than Friedman and certainly preceding Reagan. You seem to make a similar link to Carter and social conservatism. Um, how does President Carter fit into this story about the right wing, a, a story that we might not normally include him in? Right. So, you know, Carter was vilified by the right. On the other hand, you know, when he started running for office, you know, a, in the election against uh, President Ford, he came out as an evangelical. He, he tried to tap his evangelical roots and practice as a way of distinguishing himself from normal politicians, and particularly the legacy of Richard Nixon and Nixon's private sinning. And Carter calls, called upon his uh, evangelical roots to say, you know, I will not lie to you. I am a man of the church. I believe in Jesus. And even though Carter was, um, in, in many respects, um, you know, a conventional uh, liberal Democrat, although in this period of time that was hard to do, um, he also opened that door for bringing in uh, evangelicals, people who talked about their born-again um, beliefs into the public eye. And, of course, uh, there was some big conference on the family that... Um, that uh, Carter put together, and a lot of evangelicals came to that, and that was one of those moments in Carter's presidency where the conflicts between religious conservatives and uh, other kinds of social liberals really clashed, particularly around the family, because all of those traditional notions of what the family is, what sex practices should be, the evil of abortion, all came to a head during that that conference on the family. I can't remember what date it was, 1978, perhaps. Now, in the interest of time, we're not going to be able to cover everything. And so I want to fast forward a little bit because 
Um, a, a good portion of the book and a good portion of your contribution is, is to use this foundation to think and talk about the Tea Party. Um, so let's talk about that in that part of the book. Uh, you connect what has been called the paranoid style to the Tea Party movement of the last, say, five years or so. Um, where does this style come from, and, and how does it relate to the Tea Party as we know it? Well, you know the paranoid style is this um, phrase that comes from the great historian Richard Hofstadter, who wrote about McCarthyism and the campaign around Goldwater and tried to figure out, you know, who are these people and what is that kind of enraged uh, sensibility of feeling discriminated against, of um, vamped on by the evil government forces. And so one of the things that I found interesting was as the Tea Party began to build momentum, as it begins in 2009, um, in reaction to the election of President Obama and the TARP and the stimulus package, uh, various kinds of similar behavior and enraged sensibility began to be noted by a lot of people, normal journalists, academics, and the like. And so people started resurrecting Hofstadter and Hofstadter's notions of the paranoid style and status anxiety when trying to understand the kinds of rhetorical excess and flights of fancy and departure from facts that the Tea Party was engaging in. You know, as I try to say in the book, there it's one thing to talk about and open a discussion about the evils of taxation and the evils of um, too much government spending and the problem of experts running our lives. And it's, an, it's quite another to then move into notions that, you know, President Obama is secretly a Muslim, that he has no birth certificate in the United States, that he's secretly a Kenyan socialist bent on destroying American industry, and the whole birther phenomenon, which is very connected to much of the Tea Party and the Tea Party's rhetoric, is emblematic of what people talk about the paranoid style of American politics. So much of the there, there are these these connections and these overlaps and, and similarities, um, but a lot has changed since uh, the time of Goldwater, and, and a lot of that has been related to how politics works. Ideas can stay the same, but but the mechanics of politics changes. I wonder if you and you didn't uh, deal with this a lot in the book, but 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 given your background in communications, I wonder if you've you know, thought very much about some of the differences in how these messages that may be very similar to those that were shared 40 years ago, how they have connected um, the, the ways in which they have been disseminated and, and how that relates to the significance of the Tea Party today versus the, the Goldwater wing of the Repu Republican Party in the 1960s. Um, I think a couple of things there. One, um, the going back to some of my old um, communication work, the deregulation of American communications um, had certain kinds of consequences, one of which is simply to open up the field to different um, voices that had been 
um, pretty much uh, kept out. So uh, politically charged rhetoric had been kept out of mainstream media by things like the Fairness Doctrine, the, the kinds of uh, public uh, trustee model of broadcasting. Once broadcasting was deregulated and cable grew and all of these new um, outlets opened up, then um, especially the right wing realized there were places for them to go. And they created um, certain kinds of media empires, and it wasn't just Fox News or Rush Limbaugh talk radio, but there's a long tradition that grew very rapidly in the 1970s of um, religious broadcasting, particularly right-wing religious broadcasting of a fundamentalist or heavily evangelical nature. And um, though there's a, a, a big debate about whether there's a silo effect, whether there's an echo chamber, it's certainly possible now for people of particular political proclivities or any kind of interest group to basically keep themselves in a particular kind of communication silo where they they may read the National Review with their intellectuals, they watch Fox News, they may listen to Rush Limbaugh, um, they go to those kinds of websites, and competing um, arguments are... Uh, basically already massaged in a way that they're, they're considered illegitimate. Now, and I'm not saying that the, that conservatives do this only. Liberals do it as well. They're, the, the very choice of much media now creates the possibility of creating your own little private or uh, delimited kind of um, media system. Yeah, I, and I, I think that's um, very much one of the reasons why a book like yours is, is um, important and useful and, and, and so very interesting. I mentioned at the start uh, how much I enjoyed this, and I really do think it's a, uh, a very nice contribution to this growing and, and very recent literature uh, on the Tea Party and on its various connections uh, to the past and, and various connections to things that are going on today. Thank you. What's, what's next for you? Uh, do you have a another project connected to this one or or is there something else on your on your desk what do we have to look forward to from you yeah it's interesting um i tend to do uh i i I like doing one big project at a time there there are scholars that have three four projects floating around i don't and so i'm i'm kind of poking around but there was a chapter or that didn't make it to the book uh polity press wanted the book to be short and sweet, and I think they've made the right decision about that. But I became um, very intrigued with the role of Reinhold Niebuhr, the mid-century Protestant theologian often considered in the in Christian circles of a kind of theological uh, conservative, but he was very much a political liberal. And there was, an, you know, way prior to when Jerry Falwell became a national figure, there were people like Reinhold Niebuhr from the mainline Protestant movement who was very influential. And um, just as there's been a resurrection of Richard Hofstadter and the paranoid style in American politics perspective 
when you had the rise of Obama and the Tea Party together. There's also been a rise or a resurrection of Reinhold Niebuhr. And I'm curious to how that happened and why that happened. And so I've started to be, I started to read a lot more Niebuhr and commentaries on Niebuhr, seeing if I can scope that out. Well, I, I hope when that book turns into a book, uh, you come back with it. Uh, I think as uh, Polity um, has made some very good choices with your most recent one. It is it is short, sweet, but full of a lot of very interesting uh, information. Uh, again, the title, America's Right, Anti-Establishment Con- uh, Conservatism, From Goldwater to the Tea Party, published uh, by Polity Press. Robert uh, Harwich. Robert, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Heath. It's been a pleasure. Very nice to talk to you.